Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Security Headline. Two days ago, I was talking to an older friend of mine, and he told me that one thing that we should all be certain of is that the world is always changing 15 years into the future. Countries change, empires rise and fall. What is the next big thing is a question a lot of people are asking themselves. I believe that in the IT space, the programming language are going to drastically change, and a new player on the, on the programming block is the programming language Rust promising us security, safety, and stability. With me today is one of the developers of the very popular Rust programming library called Tokyo, which is mostly used for async and socket programming. It's Kor Lurche, the Rust developer, Tokyo maintainer, and our guest of honor today. How are you doing, Carl? Great, thanks for having me. It's super fun to have you on. Now when we, finally we have a real uh, Rust head? Is that what you call a Rust? Uh... Uh, Rustation. People sometimes say Rustations. The unofficial Rust mascot is a crab or a crustacean. Oh, cool. So how did your journey with Rust start and what got you into technology? Why technology and Rust? Yeah, maybe about five or six years now, I was looking for a hobby project and something to work on the side for fun. And as people do, I thought I would dabble with a distributed database. I was like, let's build a distributed database (laughs) on the side. And because I didn't actually have to ship anything and it was just for fun, I ended up spending some time investigating languages and was like, do I want to use Java? Do I want to use C or C++? And about this time, I was uh, working with Yehuda Katz and Yehuda Katz was involved with a bunch of people from Mozilla, Mm -hmm. David Herman at the time, and he suggested, hey, they're working on this fun language, Rust. You should take a look at it. And that kind of, I guess, nerd sniped me, ended up (laughs) spending time digging into the language and the offering. It was very appealing for the category of writing a database um, because I had some experience at the time doing operations for a Java-based database and kind of at that time, like when you're trying to keep a big Java process up, um, when there's a lot of memory and churning and like these kinds of things going on, you tend to hit the garbage collector pretty often. And then it turns out you're, you're doing ops for two things. You're doing ops for the garbage collector and for your application code. So the other alternative for me at that time, I had some experience with C++ and C. It was old experience, I guess. It's been, it was a while since I'd written C or C++, but that has the hazard of kind of giving you full access, like it's full unsafety. Like you, you're responsible for allocating memory, freeing memory, making sure you don't access uninitialized memory, making sure you guard your data in concurrent situations. You don't want to mutate while concurrently accessing. The C and C++ just gives you full control, but also puts all the responsibility on you. And because of that, you know, you got security vulnerabilities, kind of that's the hot topic when talking about Rust, Um, like big C and C++ projects like Chrome and Firefox. And I think 
Apple did a survey and Microsoft's done surveys just investigating like, hey, let's look at all the high severity bugs that we've had and roughly 70% is 70% of these high severity bugs are uh, memory unsafety related for these big projects. So while ha not having a garbage collector seems appealing for from a runtime characteristic point of view, security really is should be the number one priority. So because of this, a lot of modern databases use runtime languages. Anyway, this is the context and I was looking into what I wanted to use and Rust had the promise of giving you all that reliability and that safety without any of the runtime cost. So you get, you by using Rust, the promise is you can write reliable applications without compromising on speed. And for databases or any data plane type service, uh, and I come from a like networking services like background, so that's what I tend okay. to focus on. The promise of Rust was very appealing, but when I got involved at a, about like five six years ago, Rust was just getting started, and there was no ecosystem really yet. Um, the standard library provided sockets, like just plain like TCP blocking sockets, and that's about it. So. That's really where I got involved. I started yak shaving the networking stack and I kind of never left that yak shave. <laughs> I never got back to the database side project. I had my own side project of uh, building up the non-blocking asynchronous uh, Rust stack. That's nice. That's really nice. So you almost were uh, involved in Rust from the beginning then. Yeah, I think if I recall, like Rust itself started mint like 13 plus years ago, I think Rust kind of started around the time Go was first announced, but it was a completely different language back then. Like Rust, when it was first kind of released to in the open, was a lot more like Go. Like there was a garbage collector, mm -hmm. there was um, there was a runtime, and I think there was even like green threads involved. But like Go took off, and I, there wasn't much of an. I guess Go took over that space, and I don't know when, but. If I recall, like there was a research done in the linear types and how can you provide safety without without the gar the runtime, and then eventually run Rust decided to completely shift, and that was about that was about when I got involved. Like maybe I got involved a year after that. And how was your uh, kind of first month or first year with Rust? Did you find uh, because you know Rust is notorious for this big learning learning step and uh, how did you find uh, getting started with rust and right so the getting started story for me was is much different than what it would be for anyone starting now right when i started there was definitely it was very early days there was not a lot of like there was no book there was no kind of like set of blog posts like big um body of blog posts and there was not a lot of existing code to look at so and the compiler was definitely a lot more unstable <laughs> so when i got involved and started writing rust it was a lot of internal compiler errors and asking hey what's this and getting fixes and whatnot but now yes things have improved a lot 
but Rust has, I think, a reputation. Some is left over, some is carryover from earlier days, but there's still something there. Has a reputation of being hard to learn. Now, I don't think it's hard to learn necessarily because of the language itself. Mm-hmm. What I think it is is there, like Rust, puts memory management in your hands, but verified. So if you're coming from a point of view or like an experience, a background where you used a runtime language, where you had a garbage collector and you could take references to your objects and just pass them around and duplicate your references, not worry about memory management because the garbage collector would just do it for you, then yes, there's going to be some, there's going to be some friction on top of learning a language, you also have to learn proper memory management strategy, right? You have to think about your memory ownership, where, what owns the memory, what, like, where are you borrowing or passing references to this memory? Make sure that, um, like, that lines up, right? But if you come from already a C and C++ point of view, part of what people will find is the rules enforced by Rust really are what should be best practices in terms of how you structure your programs from C and C++. So if you come from that experience, there's going to be, I guess, there's still a learning curve because Rust is a new language and the borrow checker, there is a bit of getting used to the borrow checker, but it is less, it is less severe from that side, I think. But from the other side, you have to learn the language and memory management. So there's addition, additional friction. And oftentimes, like new users, especially my experience, and I remember this when I first started learning Rust, because like I said, while I had some C C++ experience, I was very rusty and had a lot of Java and Ruby and just mm-hmm. JVM languages, uh, language experience as well. So I kind of, there was also a learning curve for, for, for me to relearn like, okay, let's think about ownership. And sometimes I'd be like, this should be safe. Why is Rust not letting me do it? And 90% of the time, at this time, a long time ago, 90% of the time, like the the Rust compiler was correct and I would have introduced a bug. And like another 10, like 10% of the time back then, I think there was like maybe incorrect, like there were some bugs or some limitations that don't exist anymore. But there's still a learning curve. So yes. <laughs> Why do you think you stayed in the Rust space and didn't switch to another yeah. language? So I think that Rust itself, like you said, is a game changer, right? So it completely changes the, like the calculus of picking languages and what you can do. So you, you can, like Rust enables just like maybe more junior developers to, or to jump in and become system developers, right? There's, hmm. there's a lot more, because of the, safety and the fact that your the the rust compiler and the borrow checker is kind of your like co-pilots when you're going down into the guts of memory management um it lets you it lets a lot more people jump down to that level and it also like i said like i mentioned uh, hinted at earlier there is kind of when when you're building a networking service even if you have a lot of C and C++ experience, if you 
go and write C and C++, there will be high severity bugs. Like the people working on Chrome mm-hmm. and iOS and all that, they're, they're the best kind of like They're like, they're the really experienced one, developers and there are still bugs. Like it's just a fact. So oftentimes when thinking about customers and like what, like let's think about the customers when you're building a service, what do they want? First, security is number one, like especially in the networking services and the cloud space, Certainly. customers are trusting us with their data they're like let so it's it's key to like respect that trust and be like first safety then speed so in that context a lot of times when building services companies engineers will pick java go all and runtime based languages even if those come with a runtime cost so but Rust changes the calculus where you can really, when working on data plane level services, or you can get that like last 30% performance. And it's more than just the performance. There's also the reliability, the runtime reliability in terms of latency distribution. So mm-hmm. like Java, for example, like it's well, like it's well known Java on average ha- is only about like a 30% overhead over C and C++. But that average mm-hmm. overhead is just part of the calculation. Like there's Java tends to have like latency spikes when the garbage collector's running, right? So right now I think, uh, and, and there's lots and lots and lots of effort being put into improving the garbage collector. But I like right now, a hundred millisecond pauses is not uncommon. And I believe like there's work underway to try to reach like 10 millisecond, 99th percentile pauses or 95 or 99th percentile pauses. And that's pretty good. And that's already pretty hard to reach. If you're with Rust, you can achieve like sub millisecond, like latency distributions. So it's like, because you still have to work with the Linux scheduler and there are ways of, there's still ways of like pin, you pin core, like you pin threads to cores, you make sure things are like, have the space to just run. Um, and there's other things you can do, but there's also diminishing returns, but still, so there's, there will be, still be some variance, but you still can get that a uh, lot more reliability. And I, I think at the end that changes, that changes the calculus and that reliability without that reliability, that speed without any sacrificing like Safety is huge for, especially in the cloud, cloud network space. Totally. I think it's a real game changer yep. with the, just with the memory management. So all the listeners that don't know the big problems with C and C++ is that you allocate a, basically a place in memory where your program does stuff. And sometimes that memory place that can be manipulated. So people could write outside and uh, outside of the memory allocation basically telling your program, hey, you go do all these bad things that you're not normally supposed to do. And with Rust, you have kind of layers of protection to protect against that. So let's jump into Tokyo. What is Tokyo and why do you want to work on that? Yeah, so Tokyo is an asynchronous networking kind of, I guess, framework or it's a library or framework, whatever you want to call it. But it provides, like Rust is just the language. Tokyo when provides all the runtime and library components you need to have like basically build an out of the box reliable service. So 
when building networking services, especially, uh, especially high throughput and high concurrency networking services, the kind of the way you do it is you use non-blocking sockets. And there's new, there's in fact, like there's new um, developments in the Linux kernel with IO U-Ring providing new flavors of ways of doing it. But oh, cool. um, the main thing, the main idea is you don't want to block a thread for one socket. You want to like balance your thousands of sockets across a core set of threads. But, but when you're writing the application, you don't really want to worry about those runtime details. You just want to focus on your application. So Tokyo provides the runtime you need. It gives you socket, a socket API. It gives you like timer APIs. It gives you like concurrency primitives, like channels. Um, it gives you access, like it gives you APIs for accessing signals, like operating system signals or like spawn sub processes, all, everything you would expect from kind of a standard toolkit to build networking services. But the Tokyo API is fully async. And it's built upon Rust's asynchronous, uh, async await primitives. So Rust provides the language constructs, but doesn't provide any of the runtime. And this is different from Go, for example. So Go conceptually is the same thing, but from an API point of view, they use green threads. So from when you're writing Go, you, it looks like sequential blocking code, but instead of blocking the operating system thread, you block a Go thread. And under the hood, they're using the same non-blocking operating system APIs. But because Go decided to bundle kind of the language with asynchronous uh, or non-blocking um, ideas, the runtime has to be embedded into the language. Rust decided to decouple these two things and okay. provide the um, asynchronous support in the language with async and await. And Rust, the language provides a, I guess, an API in which third-party libraries can hook in and provide the runtime concepts. So Tokyo uses those language constructs to provide everything you need out of the box. Oh, so nice. If you're building a proxy, yeah, a proxy or a database, you'd like pull in Tokyo. Use your like use your um, like the sockets, build your like protocol and you'd be good to go without having to worry about the details. And why did you start working on Tokyo? Was there a lack of all these features in other yeah. or? Yeah, so when I, well, when I very first started five plus years ago, I was working, the very first crate was Mio. So Mio initially, I think Stan uh, was like mini IO, but now it's metal IO. It's like the M is placeholder for anything you want really. <laughs> but Mio, okay. MIO. And the goal of MIO was to be a, like a minimal API on of the operating systems, non-blocking API, like construct. So on Linux, that would be ePoll. Back when I was working on it, it'd be ePoll on OS X and the BSDs. It would be KQ and on Windows, IOC fee. So Back when I started, there wasn't anything for that. This, what you had to do was just hook into the syscalls directly. And okay. I, yeah, I started by just providing a minimal library that just covered those different constructs in a portable way. So that was, and because back then there was no asynchronous uh, language constructs, it was just 
it was just sync. So when you used MIO, you had to deal with the complexities of asynchronous code yourself. So Mio just gave you the operating system events, and then you mm -hmm. were responsible for managing, like re like re-enter the logic and or the state machines or whatever code you were doing. So if it's it was pretty low level in that regards. And three or four, I think probably three or four years ago, Rust, the Rust team decided to kind of step back, look at what people were using Rust for and figure out their roadmap for the future, figure out the use cases that like customers were using Rust for and optimize those, like really make that story uh, a polished story. And one of those use cases was networking services. So hmm. the Rust team ended up looking at that category of problem and ask like, hey, how can we improve the ergonomics and just polish this problem off, like polish it off. And that's kind of how the async await language keywords and construct came about. And it was not an uh, it was not obvious how to implement it. I mean, I, I was kind of mm -hmm. listening in on some of those early discussions. And because Rust doesn't want to provide a garbage collector and doesn't want to provide like essentially a runtime, provide like adding a language, uh, adding a uh, async awaits construct that enabled you to work with it as you would expect with, you'd be able to borrow. Uh, basically what it required making Hey everyone, this is Philip, your host. Are you interested in getting to know a bit more about Rust? Maybe you want to start a new job working with Rust. Yeah, why not? Or are you already a Rust developer? In that case, head over to rust.careers. That is R-U-S-T dot C-A-R-E-E-R-S. Rust.careers. They list the latest Rust jobs, and they're actually, I think they're the only website that does that. So head over to Rust.careers and start your new Rust adventure. Making the, the borrow checker be able to understand asynchronicity, if that makes sense. And that was not obvious. <laughs> there was a lot of, mm. there was a lot of technical questions and like just AP, like how are you going to make it work conceptually? I think that like it took a bit of time to figure that out, but the way the end solution, the end solution that Rust has for the async and await keywords, I think are, are really, really nice. And the, the strategies that they use to solve the hard problems, very clean and how they were able to decouple the the language from the runtime is just like, I think it's a, it was a good solution. It's not like there are, if you dig into the details, there are some, like, it's not there. It's because it's a hard problem. There's some hard concepts, but those hard concepts have been encapsulated pretty well so that most people don't have to worry about it all. And that I think is pretty cool. So most people can just write awesome. async rust as you would expect you can borrow data you can like pass along you can borrow it across asynchronous yield points and it's memory safe 
and I mean, I think it's a pretty that that fact is a pretty powerful concept. That's awesome. So it just handles all the big, big pains for you. That's really amazing. Yep. So, for everyone that wants to check out Tokyo, do you have a, like some recommendation on maybe yep. some fun test projects that are easy to yep. do with Tokyo? Yeah. So when when you well, my my preference when I learn a new technology is kind of read a whole bunch of material, skim it over, try to understand the broad concepts, and then try to build something. So for Tokyo, there I've, before jumping into Tokyo, I'd recommend reading the Rust book. So if you don't have familiarity with Rust, I would start there, just some basic like maybe CLI tools or things like that. But once you have the basics of Rust and the borrow checker down, uh, you can go to the Tokyo website and it's Tokyo t-o-k-i-o dot r-s mm -hmm. and on there we have a tutorial a fairly in-depth tutorial and it's based around uh, kind of a mini redis implementation so it's it's not mm -hmm. at all a full re-implementation of redis it's just we took a few i i liked the idea of kind of re-implementing redis because redis has so many different flavors of features that we can basically pick the ones we want to implement to demonstrate Tokyo concepts. But we also have like on the, in the Tokyo GitHub. So the, the tutorial, the website links to all these resources, but we have uh, kind of the mini Redis implementation and it's well-documented, well-commented. So you can just read through that to see kind of how a bigger example fits together, like a quote unquote real application. And the guide walks through the various concepts that we demonstrate in mini Redis. So start there. And then the next step can be, you take the mini Redis project like repository and you mm -hmm. pick a different Redis feature to implement. Cause there, there, we didn't even like, we, I think we did four, five different commands or something like that. So there's many others, uh, but it, you can pick one and try to implement it and see what happens. That's very nice to uh, get that. Is there any similar library to Tokyo out there? Do you have competitors or is Tokyo kind of the big player on the block? I think Tokyo was the first one and there are some more out there. Like there's, I think that async STD is out there and it's built on a subset of crates, but and they're both, I think, similar in concept. Mm -hmm. um, there's, let me think, there's, there've been a few also green thread uh, efforts and actor efforts like Actix. Um, but Actix, for example, is last I checked built on top of Tokyo under the hood. So, cause Tokyo gets you like pretty low level. So you can build layers on top of it. And I don't like, let, let me think. I think those are the big ones that are out there right now. So because the runtime, the Tokyo, uh, the, the language Rust language decouples the async constructs from the runtime. It's possible mm -hmm. to build it as a third-party crate. So um, there's no special constructs in Rust for Tokyo. Anyone can hook, hook into those. And nice. I think actually, yeah, part of uh, the mini Redis tutorial, or like just the Tokyo tutorial. I mean, sorry. Uh, we I actually take a little moments like what is like how can we implement the bare minimum. Tokyo from scratch on top of these language primitives. So you can kind of see how it works under the hood at a very, very basic level. But it, understanding that also lets you, like that's an, another strategy would be try to implement your own runtime. Because if you can understand, do that, you will understand the fundamentals of asynchronous Rust. 
how has the user adoption been of Tokyo? I mean, uh, a lot of yeah. projects picking it up. So, I mean, it's definitely like the the adoption of Tokyo is definitely beyond anything I kind of would have expected when I started working working on it. So amazing. We yeah. So I mean, like on the website, we list a few users, and it's always hard to see. like we know I know of the users that tell me they use it, right? So, but. Like for example, I'm right now、um, at Amazon AWS, working there, and Amazon AWS is a big user of Rust and Tokyo. Like because of all、nice. of the reasons that I like described, like、uh, Tokyo is used heavily, like in data plane services, because of how, like because of what that gets the customer, like the Amazon customer. Like again, I think. Being able to provide that safety, that get like that correctness, and that、um, performance, and and that、uh, reliable runtime characteristics, like short tail latencies, without like that that is a pretty killer feature. Because of that, that's Tokyo and Rust is just growing、um, significantly. You can track like the growth of the like the Rust language. Like there's a few metrics. I don't know how accurate they really are, but you know there are some metrics、um, that kind of rank programming languages, and you can see Rust growing over time. Just the the activity that I see、um, in the Tokyo repository just picking up, and the number of contributors and people getting involved is also just growing. So it's very exciting. That's cool. So do you get to、uh, spend your like work time on this, or is it one hundred percent hobby、yeah. project? So, so like. At the end, like my my goal is at Amazon is to build to make to make sure like the Amazon's building products that customers that that service our customers right and yeah and so part of that is I think I do spend a lot of time on Tokyo itself maintaining it、um, and yeah so th- that's a big component. Nice, that's very nice. Yes. So you recently published a new release of Tokyo. Yeah. What can we expect to find、oh. in there? Ah, so the O.3、Um, release. I think we describe it as a 1.0 beta. So there's、mm-hmm. a little bit of history around our versioning.、Um, like we, <laughs> Tokyo 0.1 was intended to be initial release, and it kind of stayed stable for three years.、Uh, so it's like the 0.1 release should have been a 1.0, but. We ended up like once async await stabilized, we released 0.2 as our、mm-hmm. first iteration into like supporting the async await language construct, and that was about a year ago. And like, so I didn't want to go straight to 1.0 because with 1.0 we're going to promise、uh, long-term support. So the 1.0、okay. release is going to be like supported bug fixes and basically ongoing maintenance for a minimum of five years. And we're also committing to not have a Tokyo 2.0 for a minimum of three years. And I don't know if there's ever going to be a Tokyo 2.0. There might, there might not be, but we're going to provide a guarantee of stability because I think it's going to be important for people to just be able to start building their applications、uh, and be able to build their features without worrying about churn. Yeah. So on、yeah. this path, so like we said, 0.2 we released about a year ago, and that was. To let us learn, like get more experience with async await, the language constructs, and one dot is scheduled for the end of the year. So O dot three is kind of a polished release on top of O dot two, but also a beta. So it's we're pushing out it out, and we're saying, hey, we're going to release one dot by the end of the year. 
please try 0.3. It's a beta slash, like this is what we're thinking of stabilizing. Um, there may be an 0.4 before 1.0 as a release candidate. And I expect that just to be a sanity check. I'm, I don't know. It depends on if anything big comes out of the 0.3 that we may really made a mistake. I don't think the odds are high of that. So mm -hmm. my guess is this is the beta release. Try it out. There's some big changes. So there's going to be a little bit of like probably some bugs to fix. And, okay. but once it's solid, we're going to just cut, cut the one auto and that should be, have had, that should be stable. That will be stable. Like it won't change. So I'm optimistic on that timeline. I think we're on track to hit a really good one auto release. Please try out 0.3 if you want the bleeding edge and help us validate and QA it basically. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. So let's jump into some quick questions to get to know you better. Uh, first question, how does your workflow look like when you're supposed to start your computer, write the script? How do you do it? All right. So what does my day kind of workflow look like? Well, I log on in the morning, check email, check meetings for the day, um, check in with my team, um, check in with the Tokyo contributors and me and my the Tokyo team as well. Uh, see what new issues have come in. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of it is um, I probably don't write as much code as some might think because the, the team has grown so much that they're doing a lot of the great work. So I will write a little bit here and there. Maybe my time these days is like 25 to 30% writing code, uh, depending on the day. Or, and like it, it's like some weeks I might not write any. I'll just be like mm -hmm. reviewing PRs, helping new contributors, like just and touch working on anything like issues or PR reviews that other maintainers or team members have bubbled up to me. And within work, it's kind of like the same thing uh, within mm -hmm. AWS for like internally at Amazon. It's like the same general workflow, like talk, talk with my team, right. you know, it's like, what do we need? So, I mean, that's basically it. Like today, I mean, today we're still catching up from the 0.3 initial release, like initial bug fixes, features we've missed. So I did a bit of coding there, but generally it's catch up on issues, answer questions, make sure everyone's unblocked. A lot of kind of direction setting, I guess, more than code. And sometimes I get to write code and it's fun. Nice. And then I write bugs, but <laughs> no. What operating system do you use? Um, I actually have two laptops. <laughs> I have a mm -hmm. Linux laptop and a Mac laptop. Um, I was used, I used to be, um, exclusively OS 10 Mac. And I kind of, I'm starting to tr transition to Linux only like Linux, um, is my majority like operating system lap laptop now. So what I'm still not the... completely comfortable. Hmm? What what flavor of Linux are you using? Uh, it's it's the Pop OS. I got a uh, system seventy six uh -huh. laptop because I'm not I'm not into the yet. I'm not into like dig into all the customization yet. Uh -huh. I kind of just want to uh, be able to focus on code. So I'm like, all right, just get me about get me something uh -huh. I can open and be productive with right away. And it's been great. I really like the Pop OS kind of UI. It took a bit to to transition. Most of the pain is actually relearning keyboard shortcuts and those things. But so far it's been great. Having access to all the 
dev tools that I like using directly on the laptop, like Valgrind and mostly yeah. like Valgrind and all the various like um, like tooling around that has been great. So all right, awesome. What's your favorite drink? <laughs> My coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee beverages. Oh, I drink way too much coffee. So there we go. How many cups per day? Uh, three espresso beverages a day, usually two to three. So yeah. pretty, gotta fairly high. The... I got Yeah. Got to keep the brain going. I got a espresso machine like a year ago. Nice. So uh, that kind of went up since then. Nice. Get some quality coffee in you. When do you feel most happy in your week? When do you feel like you're peaking on happiness? <laughs> peaking on happiness, honestly, I would say, I don't know. I'm pretty happy, like, all around, I would say. Like, work, I'm happy with work. I'm happy, like, spending time with my kids building Lego, I think, with my kids nice. is a pretty fun thing. Or um, So, all around, I like work. I like programming. I'm, like, super lucky to be able to do the programming I do and the work I do full-time and also be able to, like, not program. <laughs> like nowadays, nowadays in my life, it's like not programming, not working is also important. So finding a balance, it's constant challenge, I guess. But totally. What's your favorite outside activity? <sighs> these days, these, yeah, these days I don't do like I don't leave the house too far anymore. But going on a run when I can, I try to run. It's been harder these days just finding the time, but um, running. Okay. Hopefully not from someone, but... Uh... No, no. Well, you know, just sometimes <laughs> you just got to, like, go for a run and uh, clear your head, but uh, yeah. come back fresh. Totally, totally. What's your favorite IDE or text editor? <sighs> so that's, like, I, I use many. So I, I like using the IDE and the like the tooling that's best geared towards the language or the this mm -hmm. environment I'm working in. So like, for example, I spent a lot of time with Vim, but nice. I also like in my career wrote, like spent a few years writing Clojure. And when I was doing that, I just used Emacs. So mm. nowadays, I, and so I've used both. And now, honestly, I'm, let's see, I'm using VS Code mostly because I didn't want to copy, like I didn't want to reset everything up and I just want to get them going. It was mostly like, I need to write some code right now without mm -hmm. like when I got my new laptop without resetting everything up and I just downloaded VS Code and I kind of stuck with it um, because of the Rust Analyzer integration. That's I think the big thing, the Rust Analyzer integration right now is easier out of the box with like VS Code, but mm -hmm. I also kind of also sometimes toggle with Vim. So I guess, my editor is really what works best for the problem. Awesome. What's your favorite song or band? Uh, let's see. I guess it depends on what my mood is. I listen to a lot of, I guess, what's it? Right now I'm listening to like the whole, I guess, neo 80s, like Kavinsky and uh, those. Mm. I don't know in that mood, but sometimes like, I guess like I like Goldfrap too, or just in those veins like electro, like electronic pop or whatnot. Oh, nice! Yeah. What's your favorite type of GitHub issue? What oh, GitHub, GitHub issue? Oh, most? my 
my favorite one is the one that like provides all the detail and in a repro. So like if they basically, if it's a GitHub issue that says, Hey, here's my environment. Here are all the versions I'm on. This is the code that I'm running. This is what I expect. This is what's happening. Here's how you can like see what I'm seeing. Um, that's the best <laughs> because then you can just do the first pass of like, look at it, see if they're like, maybe there was a misunderstanding and how the API works. You can see that. And then if there's an actual bug, it's like, I have the repro here um, to like see it myself. And, and then the even better one is like you provide some guidance and then they go and submit the PR to fix it. Oh, that's the best one. That's the best yeah. one. <laughs> one, the, the one that comes with the PR. Uh nice yeah. good answer how do you do like package management how do you make sure your system stays up to date and happy um i think like they're just the auto updaters so i get the uh, auto updates the like pop pop os comes with its auto updates uh the like os 10 comes with its auto updates i like not so i like things that automate automate everything away so i don't have to worry about it I just, I am not so, like, I used to be the tinker in the lab, like, tinker, like, build my own computers and then install, like, Linux. Back before I was on OS 10, I was, like, on Linux too. So it's, like, coming back to it. But then I was, like, all right, let's actually, I need to spend time being productive at work too. So yeah. anything that works out of the box to automate all these tasks away is the best. Nice. Nice. So yeah, what does the future hold for you? Are you working on any cool Rust project or is there any <sighs> cool features in Tokyo that we can expect right. to? So after I mentioned IOU Ring earlier as a new kind of next iteration on top of like providing asynchronous APIs to the like asynchronous operating system APIs. Mm -hmm. So that's still like it's in heavy developments. Um, and there's, it's like every new Linux kernel has new functionality. I don't even think most, there aren't that many distros that are in a new enough kernel to really get the everything you need for a solid deployment in production, I guess, mm -hmm. yet, but that's coming really fast. So once 1.0 is out and it's stable, bug, like, you know, bug reports go down, like big missing features. We don't have any big missing features. Um, I don't think we will, but like I expect hopefully second quarter of 2021 i think we're going to start looking seriously at adding u-ring support in tokyo directly because there's a lot of benefits nice. there. so there's like i think the biggest thing well there's two big benefits as i see it and i'm still very early on in exploring it so hopefully i'm not terribly wrong but the first benef big benefit is providing a truly as asynchronous file system api hmm. and so for like file systems like a, you can't use ePoll with a file. And then oh. there are some Linux, like Linux APIs for doing async file system access, like libAIO, but those mm -hmm. I would say are a bit rough and geared to specific, very specific use cases. So Uring try, I think initially started as an attempt to um, fix that, mm -hmm. um, to provide a good general async file system access. And over like throughout while building that, it, I believe what the realization came that like you can use that same interface to provide to, to add asynchronous access for anything like TCP, oh, cool. like any sockets or not. And because the, the, the API is built around um, like 
a lock-free queues, like you have a submission queue to submit an, opera an operation to the kernel, and then you have another queue to receive the response. So you mm -hmm. put the, because it's based on lock-free queues, there's, you can write your entire application with virtually no syscalls. And the thing about oh. writing without syscalls, and you can also do it with virtually, no, and without copying data between user space and kernel space. Oh. And the fact that you can avoid syscalls and you can avoid copying data provides just generally significant uh, performance benefits because especially in multi-tenant systems, I don't like, you're probably familiar with what's with, with like, all the whole specter and I don't remember all yeah. the fancy names, but the like, yeah. CPU timing bugs, uh, like exploits. So these, to fix these required slowing down syscalls in multi-tenant environments. I mean, I think, I think you have to like opt mm. back into the performance because like as in, it's been a bit since I looked into it, but because like if a number of syscall optimizations allowed an attacker to use timing to extract memory, like to, ex to oh. read memory. And then like, I probably out of my depth talking it, but like you can basically leverage by doing, but you access memory and time how long it took to read it. And then you can tell if it was like cache hit, cache miss and, some, and somehow deduce, like actually read it. I don't know. I, don't, I did not, <laughs> it seems a little intense, but mm -hmm problem so in multi-tenant in multi-tenant situations syscalls have to be slowed down to avoid this timing problem and because of this there is now a good reason to try to minimize syscalls in your hot path and uring provides a way to do that so nice. we're going to be investigating how to take this it's a completely different kind of model than epoll so we're gonna to have to try to figure out how to take that and unify it with our existing apis first to just kind of change the back end and then after that see if there's ways we can provide more specific apis to hook into the lower level details of uring so it's going to be a multi like stage approach of figuring this out is there other applications that have adopted uring and stuff like that so you can take a look at or um la it's been a bit like and by a bit i mean a couple months since i've looked at into it this whole everything's moving very fast i've been right now i'm like focusing on the one auto release mm -hmm. there's mostly examples i believe there are some bigger examples and some projects out there that are starting to come out with uh u-ring support so i just have to go back and like once one auto is out and things start stabilizing then it's gonna be time to like load this up like load that context up nice very nice. I'm looking forward to that. Um, super. Yeah. So, is there anything we missed that you would like? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think we've had a pretty good kind of introduction coverage of uh, Rust and async Rust in Tokyo. So the takeaway is, you know, if you want to start building reliable networking services without compromising on speed, you know, try out Rust, try out Tokyo, go to the Tokyo website and read the guides, try it out. Let us know what you think. Totally. And where can people follow you and keep up to date on what you're doing? Uh, I don't know. I, I have a Twitter that's just Carl Urch. Um, okay. But I don't tweet anything super in, like super <laughs> interesting there. Uh, there's the Tokyo, the Tokyo Twitter where we tweet out announcements. 
mm-hmm. um, and we have a blog. The Tokyo website is a blog as well. So almost everything I do that's interesting is going to be published. Like, try, like you could watch the issues and the, the the PRs, and we'd love to have you jump in and contribute. I think there's been like there's a lot of contributors kind of jump in by even just things like doc fixes. Like if there's a typo in the docs, like we really appreciate taking the time to submit a one character PR that fixes a typo. Like that's already helpful. Or like even jumping in, like you read the guides and there's something confusing, like maybe something that was missed in the flow, just kind of figuring that out and then submitting another paragraph that fills the gap. Um, There's a lot of kind of a lot of contributors jump in there, just small, small things like that. And then eventually jump into more and more. We also have a discord where we hang out and talk about using and contributing to Tokyo. It's like a -hmm. a discord.gg slash Tokyo. It's linked to from the website as well. So the easiest thing to do is just go there and jump in there. We have a pretty active community and lots of great people helping out answering questions there too. Super. So yeah, you should, you as listening to this, you should totally check that out. Cole, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Yeah. I've learned a lot yeah. and I'm uh, super happy to hear about Tokyo. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye.